Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church on this, uh, the beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday. Um, I, again, I feel like I say this all the time, that I'm really excited about what the Lord has given me to share with you, so on and so forth. But seriously, today, I'm really excited about everything that the Lord has given me to share with you. Uh, today begins Holy Week. We're exploring the last week of Jesus' life. And, and one of the ways that I've even heard the Gospels talked about is, is the Gospels are really a passion story about the last week of Jesus with a very significant preamble to them. That this is, the, this is the week, this is the moment for us as Christians. This is the pivotal story of all stories. This is, the, this is the fulcrum of history that we're examining this week. This is when it all comes together. And so today, what I want us to do is ex- examine not just the story of Palm Sunday itself, but we're going to be looking at the entire last week of Jesus' life, trying to find some sort of a lens that helps us to understand what is really going on. What is it that Jesus has really done on our behalf, and not just us, but all of creation? Because if we don't have those proper lenses, we miss it. And we continue to misread the story of Jesus. We continue to misunderstand what the kingdom of heaven really is. That this is really about the ultimate demonstration of humility from God himself that saves the world. And so I'm going to pray, but I'm going to pray the ancient words um, of this Christ hymn that we find in Philippians 2, that Paul was writing this song that the um, the earliest followers of Jesus all knew. So you can close your eyes. Uh, You can read on, on the screen whatever you want to do. Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, this is why we gather here today. This is what we want to understand uh, because it's, it's so alien to us. It's so foreign to us to understand a God who would stoop to that place to make himself less than a human being in order to bring salvation, in order to overcome evil, to get us back on track, to administer the kingdom, to welcome us back into relationship with you. Father, that's why we're here. So would you open our eyes to see the story the way that you intended for us to see it? Would you open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us every step along the way? Would you open our hearts to receive your truth that we might leave this place a little more firmly established in your kingdom than when we came in? May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so today, like I said, we're going to be starting with the story of Palm Sunday, but we're going to be moving through these pivotal moments in the last week of Jesus. But this is kind of the, the, the pivotal theme of today. It is Jesus' humility, emptying himself of everything for our sake that saves the world. And we're going to be talking a lot today about what, what do we think saves the world? What are the solutions to the problem of evil that human beings come up with? 
And how do those often clash, or, or, or are they juxtaposed against the way that God has decided to do it? And even next week on Easter, we're going to be looking at how this, this completely upside-down plan of God is actually the thing that saves the world. But we begin on Palm Sunday. This is the week, uh, the week of Passover, and Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem. His final act of, of, all, of the, all of the evil of the world is beginning to be gathered up against the Messiah, and he's heading into war. And what we find is that Jesus comes in uh, to Jerusalem riding on a colt. And all of these people, they already know about him. He's been in a few times, and he's got all of these followers all throughout the Middle East. And people come, and they're praising him and worshiping him and saying, here he is, finally, our Messiah, our king. He's come, and they begin to lay down these palm fronds as this triumphal entry, kind of giving him a map on which he can come into the city. And it's just electric. They can just feel the energy. There's this anticipation. This is what it looks like when God sends his emissary, when God sends his king to come and to triumph over evil, which they thought was just the Roman Empire. That God's Messiah, he's going to come in and he's going to fix everything and he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to reestablish Israel. He's going to give us our boundaries back. He's going to give us our place in history back and everything is going to be absolutely wonderful. And we begin the, the last week of Jesus' life with this triumphant moment. Everybody's on board. Everybody's excited to see what happens. But very quickly, things begin to change. Very quickly, Jesus begins to say and do things that leave people more confused than they were when Jesus walked through the door. How much, can I get an amen? How many of you, sometimes you're a little bit more confused when Jesus walks through the door than you were before he came in? Because you had an understanding, right? You're like, yes, this is how the world works. And when Jesus comes in, he's just kind of kind of reinforce the way the world already is, but just make it better. And then you encounter Jesus through his word, through his people, through worship, and he actually just throws everything up in the air. And that's really what I want us to be focusing on today, that Jesus gave his followers words and symbols to prepare them for what he was about to do. And that's, what, that's a really great way for us to understand the last week of Jesus' life, that he's giving these words and these symbols that are preparing them to understand what the cross was really about. And so immediately after the triumphal entry, Jesus uh, begins to speak to the people. And we're going to be looking at John 12, verses 20 to 33. These are Jesus' first words after this triumphant um, entry where there's singing and there's dancing and there is a celebration. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I really love this, this that it begins with this, we would like to see Jesus, because I think that for many of us, that's our expectation. That's our entry point into the story. We would like to see Jesus. But they have an agenda in the kind of Jesus that they would like to see. And I think a lot of times we do too. We have a version of Jesus that we would like to see. We have a version of Jesus that reinforces that we're in the right tribe, that we're on the right side of history. We'd like the Jesus that comes in and confirms all of our biases and our prejudices, that we're strong and capable and awesome, and everybody else, they're the ones that are losing their minds. 
They're the ones that are about to be overcome. Because what were they anticipating? They were anticipating this warrior king. And we see this time and again as Jesus is engaging with people throughout his earthly ministry. We see it even within his own disciples in Peter and especially in Judas Iscariot. That when they hear Messiah, when they think of God's anointed one, the son of David coming in, he comes in with a sword and he's going to beat up the bad guys. And he's going to say to them, no, 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 you're right, you're entitled, you have everything going for you, and I'm going to clear the way for you to, to, to maintain your tribal identity. I think so often we, like even Jesus' closest disciples, we miss it because we come in and we say we want to see Jesus, but we want to see the Jesus that reinforces who we are because it's not how we anticipate God's going to do it. It's not the story that we would have written if we were in charge. And so Jesus' reply, the hour of God has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They're thinking, yes, this is it. This is how it's going to happen. The king is in the city. He's beginning to gather together his army. And eventually we're going to see the overthrow of Rome and the reestablishment of our independence. But it's so strange where Jesus goes next. He says, very truly I tell you, one of Jesus' favorite phrases in all of history, so we have to pay attention. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Now this is the point where we obviously start getting more confused. Because that's not what a powerful king would say. That's not what a military commander would come in and, and begin his great proclamation with. But if it dies... It produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, and anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. It's so strange juxtaposing these two ideas. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, it cannot produce. Because when we think of glory, we think of strength. When we think of glory, we think of power. When we think of glory, we think of control. It also doesn't sound like rebellion, what those first listeners, the anticipators of Jesus, were looking for. This doesn't sound like revolution. And so what we see throughout the last week of Jesus' life is in this moment when everybody's on board and Palm Sunday, slowly they begin to leave him and abandon him one by one. Jesus continues on in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. We get trapped in this story that might makes right. That you bring a bigger stick to the fight. And that's how you move from chaos to peace. And so when we think 
Judgment. When we hear the word judgment, more poignantly, when we read the word judgment in the Bible, we think retributive just judgment. We think God's going to come in and beat everybody up. And all the justified good people are going to be on one side, and all the bad, awful, terrible people, they're going to be on the other side. But Jesus here defines what judgment is, and I think this actually becomes another way for us to understand the last week of Jesus' life. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. So when God speaks of judgment, he doesn't think of it merely in terms of reward and punishment, because that's what everybody was thinking in the time that Jesus was in his earthly ministry, and that's what we think of all the time. We think judgment, we, like, we literally have a symbol of justice, is those, the, weighing, the lady with the weighing scales. That's how we think judgment works. There's some sort of cosmic balance between good and evil. There's some sort of yin and yang balance between good and evil, right and wrong, and we just categorize things into one category or the other. And we do it with other people. We say there's two baskets in life. There's the for me basket and there's the against me basket. Also a really great name of a Florida punk band, against me. Obscure reference, you're welcome. There's always one in every sermon. But we're only in life, we're only ever given these two baskets. And we categorize, categorize everything that we're given, every one that we're given, and we say either they're for me because they reinforce the way that I already see the world, or they're against me because in some way they're ruining the way that I understand how everything is supposed to work. And that's how we pass along judgment to other people. We do this locally and we do this globally. Because when human beings are in charge and we think that, that we're supposed to run the world, that's what we do. That's what justice is. That's what judgment is. And so we read that back into the scriptures with Jesus, and we just assume Jesus is the vehicle through which God is going to do that, that he's going to balance the scales. He's just going to separate good and bad, right and wrong, and that's it. But justice, judgment in God's world is to say it's the prince of this world that is going to be driven out. What Jesus is saying is this is a spiritual war that can only be won by spiritual means, that it's not about the person in front of you. That it's not about the walls that you have built. That it's not about the policies and the rules and the regulations that you use to divide humanity. It is about getting evil at its core, at the Satan, the accuser, the voice that speaks in all of us that we sometimes think is our conscience, that tells us that judgment is about right and wrong and putting people into categories and making sure that we're just doing everything properly. But the judgment, the justice of God through Jesus is about overthrowing evil. Because the world told everybody in the first century, just as the world tells us in the 21st century, that the story about power and authority is found in aggression. The story of power and authority is found in control. The story of power and authority is about taking and grouping and having power over one another. And this is the satanic story. This is the story that the prince of this world has whispered in our ear from the beginning of our species. And we have believed it. And we've lived it out every day. The satanic story that violence is the solution to violence that justice looks like dividing people into categories, 
That judgment looks like us being justified and other people being punished. This is the satanic story that Jesus came to undo, not just in the last week of his life, but most dramatically in the cross. But it's impossible for us to hear the words of Jesus because we've been so inundated by the satanic story that we cannot see the story of Jesus unfolding in front of us. If we want to see Jesus as he truly is, we have to be immersed in his story rather than forcing him into ours. We miss so much of what Jesus said and did because we're trying to interpret him through the lens of the satanic story that we have believed is how the world works. We miss so much of what Jesus has said and done because we're trying to fit him into our agendas, in our categories of liberal, conservative, of authoritarian, socialist, black, white, whatever it might be, we have these agendas, and we're just trying to fit Jesus into our agendas to justify the way that we go about operating within the world. It's tragic that so often we start assuming our perspective is the right one, and we take our perspective and we try to cram it into heaven. But the prayer does not say on heaven as it is on earth, because we've already decided how earth is going to run. The prayer that Jesus gave us was said on earth as it is in heaven, that we need that heavenly perspective to rupture our agendas, to break all of our assumptions of how the world works and what justice looks like and how people are supposed to be organized and allow the revelation of Jesus as he truly is to influence how we read him. So what I want to do is I want to tell the story of the last week of Jesus' life and hopefully give us these new ears to hear what he's actually saying, to give these new eyes so we can see what Jesus is really doing so that we don't do the same thing as the people in the story. That Jesus began to offend them with his words and deeds and they slowly walked away because they had no categories for what he was doing. And I think this is the way for us to understand the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus emptied himself of everything on the way to the cross. Jesus emptied himself of everything on the way to the cross. We begin with the triumphal entry of Jesus. And for many of us, we don't realize what's really going on here. This is Jesus making a mockery of the way that Caesar does it. Because in the day, Caesar, who was the Prince of Peace, who was the Son of God, who was the Messiah, the King, when he was coming into a city, there was this triumphant entry through the front gates, and heaven forbid Caesar should come to your city, and he actually gets to the gates without being greeted. And so what would happen would be that everybody would run out to meet him, and there would be a celebration, there would be a party, and Caesar would come in on a great white steed and chariots and soldiers and slaves, and everybody's celebrating, and they're here, here he is, the Messiah has come, the Son of God has come. And Jesus' triumphal entry, he literally comes through the back door, and he's making this prophetic mockery of Caesar. And he takes all of those symbols, but he inverts them and makes them symbols of weakness. Instead of this powerful white steed, he rides in on a donkey. Instead of coming in with, with hordes of soldiers and prisoners, he comes in with poor people and fishermen and tax collectors. 
the people that aren't very good, the people that aren't enough. Jesus is making this prophetic proclamation against the empire and saying something is about to happen that looks like that, but it's inverse. And so Jesus enters in through triumph. The next part of the story is that Jesus comes in and one of his first acts is that he empties the temple. And I remember hearing a political pundit several years ago talking about how this was one of their favorite stories in all of scripture because it shows that Jesus doesn't take any crap. That Jesus, he's got this violent side. And what a dramatic misreading of this story. Because we think this is Jesus just losing his temper. That Jesus is just getting angry and he's going in and he's beating up people. But we miss, again, this prophetic demonstration of Jesus that he enters into the courts. The outer courts were intended for Gentiles. That's basically you and me and everybody else in here that's not Jewish. He, this space that was intended for Gentiles who knew about Yahweh and wanted to worship him, that space had been convoluted with money changers and animal sellers and all of these places had become an absolute circus that was preying on people in their honest attempts to come to Yahweh and worship him. And so Jesus fashions this whip and he goes in and he drives out all of the money changers and the animal sellers and the animals. And if you read it carefully, there's not a single place in scripture where it says that Jesus lifted a hand to another human being. See, again, that's us reading it into the story. But we miss the prophetic demonstration of what Jesus is doing. is he's emptying the temple so that it can be filled with the Gentiles, you and me, that we can have relationship with Yahweh. We can enter in and worship him without that place being reserved for those who would seek to take advantage of us. That would tell us that there's some sort of qualifier for us entering into the place of God. That we can't come as we are. We have to spend some money. We have to do a program. There's some other way that we have to get to God and Jesus is emptying the temple and saying, no, there's direct access to God and it is through me. Thirdly, we come to the Passover meal. Jesus celebrates this ancient traditional meal, the Seder dinner that we're going to be celebrating on Thursday with his closest, his disciples. And as he's participating in this sacred meal, as they're remembering the story of Israel being delivered from Egypt, Jesus symbolically takes these two elements that had sat undisturbed for a thousand years in this Seder tradition. And he says, you know that cup you know that cup of Elijah that's always sat there and has and never, we don't, we don't drink it, that we just leave it at the table waiting for Elijah? Well, that is my blood. That's my life force given for you. And, and, and you know that, that one piece of bread that we, for some reason, we wrap it up in cloth, like grave clothes, and we hide it, and we don't eat it at this meal? And for centuries, how the rabbis have refused to interpret what exactly it means, it's because it's my body. I'm the fulfillment of everything that we've been celebrating at this table for a thousand years. And so the Seder dinner, the, the Passover meal on that Thursday becomes the symbol for Jesus and for his disciples, if they can honestly hear him, of this is what it looks like when God brings justice. This is what it looks like when Jesus sacrifices himself on our behalf. That night in the garden, we find Jesus' arrest. 
that he goes out with his disciples and he anticipates it. And one of his 12, one of his most intimate friends, the one who could not reconcile that this was not going to be a violent revolution, the one that wanted more than everything to see Jesus step up and just kind of go super saiyan and just destroy everything, begins to realize that this is not the Messiah that he's been following this whole time. And he, maybe, you know, maybe Judas is so disillusioned that he just wants to abandon Jesus. Maybe Judas thinks that it's actually putting Jesus in direct conflict with the powers and authorities that he's going to see the revolution that he so desires. We don't know. But whatever it is, Judas comes into the garden and he kisses Jesus. He kisses him. This intimate symbol of friendship. He kisses Jesus and in doing so, sells him out. And then chaos ensues as the, the soldiers come in to arrest Jesus and the disciples rush to his defense and Peter, always the brash one but always so loyal, runs in and lifts up his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the people that's there and Jesus says, no, Peter, stop. Put your sword away because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. It's funny which parts of the scriptures we choose to take literally and which parts we don't. That yesterday, thousands and thousands of people around this country stood up to say, I'm not sure that this is the way that things are supposed to work. I'm not sure violence is the answer. I'm not sure it actually brings justice. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who believe in the satanic story that we need to bring a bigger stick to the fight in order to bring justice, in order to bring peace, that story is over in Jesus. And he begins to show us a new way. And so Jesus hands himself over to the powers and the authorities. He empties himself of his friends. He gives up those around him that would continue to whisper the satanic story. And then Jesus is brought on trial before the Sanhedrin, the authorities in the Jewish world, and before Pontius Pilate himself, the stand-in for Rome, the stand-in for Caesar, the guy who was supposed to come and bring Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to bring Rome's version of justice that might makes right. And he stands there accused by his religious leaders the people who are the representation of his religion. And he stands there accused by the Roman authorities who cannot comprehend what Jesus is saying he is doing. And he says nothing. He does not defend himself. He doesn't stand up for his rights. He doesn't strike back. But he takes the betrayal of Israel. He takes the violence of Rome. He gives up his right to defend himself. He gives up his right to fight in order to receive the violence of the world gathered up against him. After this trial, he's whipped and he's mocked by the soldiers of Rome. That they strip him naked they, they beat him bloody, but they only hit him 39 times because 40 will kill a man. And they mock him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and they, they call him, not realizing that it's prophetic, they call him the king of the Jews. And they say, if you're a king, where's your army? 
If you're a king, where's this supposed revolution? Where's this place that you are going to stand up to us? And yet again, Jesus takes it. He says nothing. He lifts not a finger against those who would seek to do him harm. And I can only imagine this is the moment where he's really leaning into trust in his father's agenda, in the way his father wants to see things done. Because Jesus here is giving up his dignity. We fight so much for our dignity to be heard, to be seen, to have a place in the world. But Jesus gives up his dignity when he's whipped and he's mocked and he's made a fool. But as Paul tells us later on, it is the foolish things of this world that will shame the wise and the strong and the capable. Finally, on what we call somewhat ironically, but I think in a, in a more beautiful way, the truest thing that we can say, Good Friday, we find Jesus crucified. That not only was it the most brutal and painful way to die in the Roman Empire, that thank God it has been banned, yet we still have such brutal measures of bringing about justice within our own society that Jesus is symbolically taken out of the, the, the city walls. He's stripped of his citizenship. He said, you're no longer good enough even to die among other human beings. We're going to take you outside the city. We're going to take you up into this hill and we're going to crucify you like a dog. And so Jesus on the cross gives up his humanity. He gives up his humanness for us. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then on the cross, Jesus becomes an atheist. He experiences the loss of God. And can you imagine the terror, the terror that when your humanity is stripped from you, so is your relationship with God. And yet again, Jesus empties himself of his relationship with the Father in order, to, in order to overcome evil. And it finally brings us to the moment of Jesus' death, where he gives up his divinity. He gives up his God self. That in Rome, just like in our day, we imagine gods to be strong and capable. They're like us, but they're just bigger and better and in Rome, just like today, our gods stand up and make the world what it's supposed to be. And maybe it's not Zeus and Hera, but maybe it's money and power, the things that we see as gods in our day and age. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's our tribe. Whatever we see as our God solves the world by standing up for itself and imposing power and authority and control over everybody else in order to make the thing work. But in the death of Jesus, we see God doing something dramatically different. He gives up himself. He sacrifices himself on our behalf. And for so many of us, the story of the cross pits God against Jesus. 
that our understanding of God the Father looks very much like our understanding of Zeus. That here's angry junk dad coming in to beat us up, to bring justice. He's coming in with the bigger stick to get us to straighten out. And fortunately, our big brother Jesus stood in the way and took the beating on our behalf. But if Jesus is God incarnate, then what we see actually is God himself breaking himself open for us, giving up everything that he is, emptying himself on the cross through death so that we might have eternal life. And this is the final moment of Jesus giving up everything. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And so when we come to the table as believers, as the children of God, of those who recognize that we have been saved by a dramatically different story, those of us who are trying to live outside of the satanic story and begin to enact the Jesus story, when we come to the table, this is what we recognize in the body and blood of Jesus, that Jesus emptied himself on our behalf so that we could be brought back into relationship with the Father, so that we could be shown a whole new way to live, a whole new way to understand what justice looks like, a whole new way to have relationship with the divine. And so I'm going to invite those who have already volunteered to serve to come forward. And I'm going to pray over the juice and the bread as symbols to us, dramatic symbols. And I believe that there is something that happens when we participate in Holy Communion more than just remembering what has happened, more than just a nod to something in the past, but it's something that we actually incarnate in the present. That when we come to the table together and we receive the body and blood of Jesus, Jesus does something within us that more firmly plants us in his story of emptying and humility and sacrifice and believing maybe that's actually the way that we save our species. Maybe that's actually the way that we save the world. And when we do that, it transforms us from the inside out. And so I'm going to pray. And these uh, amazing people that have chosen to serve you this morning are going to go to the four corners of the room, and I'm going to invite you to do a little business with God, to, to question, am I immersed in his story, am I trying to force him into mine, and come to this table open-handed, expectant, that when you do, he's speaking over you a radically different story that will actually save your soul. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot pretend to fathom your solution to evil in this world, how you chose to save us, to rescue us. And not only that, but you're rescuing us into something new, this whole radical new way of being in the world. And so, Lord, we need words and symbols, just as the first disciples did, that demonstrate to us, that, that help us to participate in that act that goes more than just conversation, that helps us to understand what you have done for us and what you continue to do. And so, Holy Spirit, I invite your presence to anoint these sacraments, the body and blood of Jesus. Make, for, make them for us the way to eternal life, that as we take them into ourselves, we are transformed. We are changed. 
because we've encountered you in a radically new way. We pray these things in the strong and the blessed and the humble name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so they're going to go to the four corners of the room. When you feel ready, I want you to stand up and go and receive Holy Communion. of the satanic story? Have we become so numb to the status quo of just accepting this is the way the world works and it will never change? Have we closed our ears to the story of Jesus and accepted lesser stories? Lesser stories that affect how we treat one another, lesser stories that affect how we perceive the world. We enter into this existential despair when we believe this is just the way things are and tomorrow is gonna to look basically the same as today. And we miss the hope, the real tangible hope that we find in the story of Jesus. But it doesn't just stop 
with the way that we receive the story of Jesus and how that saves us. It also saves us so that we can be part of God's process of saving the rest of the world, of saving the rest of our human family. We are called to empty ourselves in a million little ways on Jesus' behalf to love others well. It doesn't just end with us receiving the truth of Christ. It also comes with us proclaiming it. That we proclaim it in a million little ways that we would have never seen otherwise had we not been touched by the hand of God. (coughs) I want to jump back in the story of Jesus' last week to another dramatic moment right after Jesus' conversation about the, the seed falling to the ground and dying. We find in John 13 the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And I love the way that this chapter starts. I think this is some of the most beautiful language that John has put together. He says it was just before the Passover meal. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And I love this. Listen to this. This is, this is about you having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Having loved his own that were in the world, that's you and me, he loved them until the end. He didn't give up. He didn't get a certain way into the story and go, you know what, this is too hard. He didn't get into this and say, you know what, God the Father's ideas are nice ideas, but this is the real world. Jesus didn't get caught up in these narratives about what's practical, because what's practical is usually just recycling the stories that we hear in the culture around us of how we're supposed to order ourselves and save ourselves. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That he believed in that satanic story that no, 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 it's going to be power and authority found in control and might that's going to save us. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power that he had come from God (coughs) and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And I love this. Jesus did not believe that his power and authority were found in controlling everything, how we often interpret God. If God is all-powerful and God has all of this authority, then it must be about him controlling the world, and therefore God makes some terrible things happen to us because that's how we assume power and authority work. The dramatic irony of of the, the passion story is that we see a God who is not seeking to be in control, but a God who actually gives up control. And it's in his giving up of control that we find his power, that we find his authority. Jesus' power and authority was not based in control. It was based in sacrificial love. Why? Because Jesus knew where he came from. He knew that he came from God, and he also knew the destination. He knew that he was going back to God. 
And that track, that trajectory gave Jesus the confidence to be able to trust in the Father, especially when it didn't make sense, especially when it wasn't practical, especially when it hurt to follow through on the mission that God had given him. See, love is the motivation of God, not control. And the way that God has written the story becomes the trajectory for where it's headed. And of course, Peter, blessed Peter, completely misses the point. And so when it comes to time for Jesus to wash his feet, he says, no, 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 you are the Messiah, you're the king, you cannot possibly stoop to wash my feet, I should be washing yours. That's what power looks like. And Jesus kind of reasons with him. <coughs> and Peter misses it again. Well, if that's the case, then I need you to wash my hand and my hands and just wash my entire body. And Jesus says, calm down. You're still missing the point. You're still trying to control this thing. You're still trying to understand this on some basic, literal level. Just let me serve you. Let me love you. Just open yourself to this moment. And he continues on. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. And I love that we don't have the disciples' response, because they didn't, and neither do we, and that's okay. That's why we keep coming back to the story. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, Jesus is molding us into his image as he continues to immerse us in his story, in his words, in his symbols. But it's also up to us to figure out how to do that. This is, I believe this is why we don't have the disciples' response, because it's up to you and me to respond when Jesus says, do you understand what I have done for you? And we say, no, but I'm willing to find out. I'm willing to taste and see. I'm willing to explore. Jesus is molding us in his image. And it's the everyday moments where we can most profoundly practice the humility of Christ. It's the everyday moments. We're all waiting for the clouds to part. We're all waiting for the, the call to action where God speaks from the heavens and says, Ryan, this is the thing you've been waiting for your whole life. We think waiting on the Lord is like waiting for a bus. We just sit there twiddling our thumbs, hoping that there will become some divine moment where we can actually kick it into overdrive and begin to enact the kingdom of heaven. And we miss the everyday moments of our lives, that every day becomes an opportunity for us to demonstrate the humility of Christ, to advance the kingdom through thought and word and deed. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What do you anticipate it's going to look like when God finally calls you to something? Because this is your moment of invitation. 
And when you and I demonstrate the love of God sacrificially, not by trying to control the world, but by sacrificing ourselves for the world in a million little ways every single day, we are symbolically echoing Jesus' death on behalf of all of us. Can we give up our supposed rights? Can we give up all of our defenses? Yes, can we even give up what we think is our dignity in order to become more Christ-like? and to love the world, to enact the story that actually does save us. Because I believe when we're able to step into that moment, you are going to realize that you are far bigger than you thought that you were. Because the satanic story of violence and scarcity keeps you small. And it's only the the story of Jesus where you are broken open that you're able to expand who you are and it comes through love. As the blessed Mother Teresa once said, love until it hurts. Because I have found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. And the invitation this Holy Week is to believe that. And so we're going to do as Jesus has commanded us to, and we're going to wash one another's feet. I know many of you automatically, your defenses are going up and going, oh, feet, disgusting. That's the very thing that I'm calling you to let go of. Because if you can do it there, then you can do it with the person that you work with that drives you crazy. Because if you can touch somebody else's gross feet, then maybe you can love that family member who's been ostracized for too long because of their addictions. Because if you can wash the feet of a stranger, maybe you can begin to see the world more and more the way that Jesus did and that every opportunity is sacred. Every opportunity is holy because it's the chance to break yourself open, to sacrifice yourself, to humble yourself in order to love someone. And so I'm going to pray in a moment, and we have several stations in the back, and what I'm going to ask you to do is to go to the back to stand in a line, and you're going to wash the feet of the person in front of you. And after you get your feet washed, you're going to turn around and wash the next person's feet. And you don't have to scrub. You don't have to do all this craziness. Just hold your feet over the basin and let the person take the the cloth and wipe your feet down and then dry your feet with the towels that are provided. And and I'm, I'm telling you, God is going to do something in this. God does something in the silliest, most mundane, weird acts because that's how he speaks to us. That's how he's choosing to shift us into his kingdom. So I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to wash one another's feet. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us in every moment of our lives to choose to live out the story of Jesus. The the story that's about emptying ourselves. The story that's about us giving up our rights and our defenses and our dignity in order to love the way that you have commanded us to love. And Father, we believe that it's when we step out in obedience to love when you love, especially when we don't feel like it or it doesn't make sense or it feels inconvenient, that those are the places that you're going to begin to speak to us about what we're truly capable of because we have been rescued and saved by you. And so, Father, as we enact this sacred act of washing one another's feet, I pray that you would speak to each one of us about how we have been saved, how we have been changed and transformed, and how we have been called to demonstrate your humility, to reenact your death on our behalf every single day for those of us 
uh, for those around us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go to the back. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.